0: From Hanover, welcome to All the Difference, Conversations with Dartmouth Changemakers. I'm Tracy Dustin Eichler, Director of the Dartmouth Center for Social Impact. Our Dartmouth alumni forge careers of impact and demonstrate that there are many roads to changemaking. As leaders and innovators across the social sector, business, and government, they make meaningful progress on our world's most complex challenges, and we want to hear all the ways they do it. At the Center for Social Impact, we educate Dartmouth students to become the next generation of changemakers. This podcast is for them and all those who seek to make an impact. Thanks for listening, and now here's our host, DCSI Assistant Director Henry Doe Rosario. In this episode, I chat with Alex Bernadotte, class of 92. Alex is the founder and CEO of Beyond 12 a technology-enabled nonprofit that integrates personalized coaching with mobile technology to increase the number of traditionally underserved students who graduate from college and translate their degrees into meaningful employment and choice-filled lives. Welcome, Alex. Thank you so much, Henry. It's a pleasure to be
1: here with you today.
0: I hope you've had a good time since being back on campus.
1: I have had a good time, and it's been a while since I've been on campus, so Mm -hmm. I am enjoying it tremendously.
0: Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. In our conversation, I'm, I'm hoping to dive deeper into some aspects of of your trajectory. What is the social challenge that you're you're trying to tackle right now, Alex?
1: So the social challenge that we're tackling is that of economic mobility. Mm. So we know that in the US, a college degree is key to social and economic mobility. According to Pew, individuals with some college, but no degree earn 18% more Mm. than their peers with just a high school diploma. And those with a bachelor's degree earn 62% more. And what's more, college graduates are also reported to experience better quality of life, Mm. um, better mental and physical health. Um, They're more engaged civically. So we know that a college degree matters. However, even though we're sending more people to college, only 16% of students from the lowest income quartile, can expect to earn bachelor's degrees by their mid-20s versus 62% of their higher income peers. Yikes. And that gap is what keeps me up at night, what Mm -hmm. kept me up at night, and that's the issue that we are tackling. How can we ensure that students who get into college earn degrees that allow them to change their economic and personal prospects, and that allow them to secure meaningful employment and eventually lead choice-filled lives?
0: Ooh, I love that term, choice, choice-filled choice lives. Can you, what is a choice-filled life? I'd love you to unpack that.
1: I would love to unpack it too, <laughs> and I'd love to hear your perspective on this, right? Because I think everybody describes it differently, but when yeah. I think about what my Dartmouth degree has allowed me to do, it's allowed me to dream. It's mm. allowed me to make decisions about my professional and personal life. It's allowed me to consider different options as I think about who I wanted to be in the world. Mm. It's allowed me to provide for my family. It's allowed me to engage civically in society. Um, For my particular situation, it's allowed me to break cycles of generational poverty in Mm. my family, for myself, for my family. Um, It's allowed me to pursue joy Mm. as an option. It's allowed me to feel physically safe It's allowed me to take care of my um, emotional well-being in terms of my, um, in addition to my physical safety. And so for me, a choice-filled life is a life of opportunity, a life of joy, a life of dreaming, Mm -hmm. and a life of community, so being able to contribute, but also being able to take care of um, folks in my community. And that's what we want. That's what we want for students, because we believe that choice is the ultimate privilege.
0: Oh, I love that. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm i not going to define it better than you just did, but I, when you said that, I thought of um, both the... The choice that you get going through a, a, an undergraduate college experience, and just being exposed to so many different things, and you know that is a you know a, a privilege, a, a value add that not everyone in our country gets to gets to experience. And I think even though um, the college degree is in some ways you know coming under attack or you know it's being questioned, and yet it is definitely still a ticket to you know, in many ways, economic prosperity, physical safety, connection to community, the ability to deliver in a different way for the community that you're coming from. So how are you, in your work, um, tackling this issue? What are are you up to right now?
1: Oh, my goodness. So um, as you have shared in my intro, um, I'm the founder and CEO of an organization called Beyond 12, Mm -hmm. and we are a national tech-enabled nonprofit um, that works specifically to help First generation students and students from under-resourced communities earn college degrees Mm -hmm. that they can then translate into meaningful employment and choice-filled lives. We do that through a coaching platform Uh that combines three elements. The first is human coaches who work with students virtually for their first two years of college. Our coaches are what we call near peers, so they are recent college graduates who themselves were the first in their families to go to college, so they understand firsthand the challenges that our students are facing on their road to earning a college degree. They are full-time beyond 12 employees. We recruit, hire, and train them, and they're responsible for a caseload of students for two years. Oh, that's amazing. The second aspect of our model is that we've built a mobile app called MyCoach, where we download the academic financial aid and other events calendars from the institutions of higher ed that our students are attending. We translate all of that into a video-based to-do list that's augmented by evidence-based push notifications to remind students of the activities, deadlines, and behaviors that lead to success, and then the third component of our platform is a backend analytics engine that's powered by machine learning that allows us to predict which students need help and when and then prescribe the right type of support. So for us, it's this combination of a technology and human service That allows us to impact not just the students with whom we may be working directly, but Mm -hmm. the institutions in our students' lives. So the high schools from which they graduated, the after-school programs and the scholarship organizations that provided them with additional support to get into college in the first place, and the colleges and universities in which they are enrolled. And so working in partnership with both high schools and colleges we're right now serving about 96,000 students across the country. Wow. And we aspire to serve a million students by 2030 and we're well on our way to doing that.
0: That's amazing. So I mean I feel like you've alluded to this and that you have maybe a personal connection to this issue, but why did you found this this organization?
1: Yeah. So I do this work because it's very personal. Mm-hmm. I was a first gen college student here at Dartmouth. I was born in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And my parents moved to the United States in search of better opportunities for me, their firstborn, and for themselves, like many immigrants do. And they left me in the care of my beloved late grandmother, Mommy Claire, who took care of me and who, by the way, passed away a few years ago, about three years ago, at the age of 105. Incredible. It is incredible. (laughs) It is incredible. Mommy Claire was awesome. And so much of why I do the work is because of the values she instilled in me. But I remember as I was growing up in Haiti without my parents, she explained their absence as ensuring opportunities for my success. And success, she explained, meant that I had to do well in school. That was my Mm -hmm. part of the deal. Mm -hmm. My parents were doing something incredibly difficult, and my part of the deal was that I had to honor their sacrifice by doing well in school. Mm -hmm. Um, I was eventually reunited with my parents in inner-city Boston. I was about seven or eight at that time. And at that time, this theme continued to govern my school experiences. But honoring their sacrifice meant that I had to go to college. Mm -hmm. Since neither of my parents had been to college, my grandmother hadn't been to college, it was this abstract thing that we talked about. We didn't really understand what it took to get there or how I was going to get there until one day, and my mom used to eavesdrop on conversations that other people were having that she thought had, you know, a lot more information than she did. So one day she overheard a group of doctors talking about where they were sending their kids to college. I was in the seventh grade. She came running home that day and said, okay, I got it. You have to go to this thing called an Ivy League. (laughs) And you have to go to this place called Dartmouth. (laughs) She had written it on a piece of paper. By the time it got to me, she pronounced it phonetically. Uh But that's how the dream of a specific college was born. Uh It was through that overheard conversation in the emergency room of Kearney Hospital in Dorchester Massachusetts where my mom worked as a phlebotomist a blood technician mm-hmm. and so armed with that information I was like bet okay we're going to this <laughs> ivy league thing we're going to go to this Dartmouth thing I'm not sure what it is but that's where I'm going because that's where Dr. Carpina is sending his daughter so I'm going there um and because of that information I worked really hard in school I wanted to honor their sacrifice And in high school, graduated at the top of my class. When those college acceptance letters started coming in, we were ecstatic. And because I'm a 92, I can share this with you. I'm older. Uh, We used to get our college acceptance letters not via email or through a portal. It was the good old-fashioned U.S. Postal Service. And back then, I know, seriously, (laughs) seriously. And if you can imagine, the way that it worked for us back then is that You got a thin envelope if you didn't get accepted because Mm. it was that form letter. We regret to inform you. Thank you for your application. (laughs) Lots and lots of people applied. Or you got this big yellow manila envelope (laughs) if you were accepted. So Mm. we already had some clues. So when all of the big envelopes started coming in, we were thrilled. And when the big one came from Dartmouth, obviously realized it was pronounced Dartmouth (laughs) and not Dartmouth (laughs) by the time the envelope came to me. We treated the moment almost as if we had won the lottery mm. because we assumed that the most difficult part of the journey was behind us and that we had now fulfilled the dream, the immigrant's dream, mm-hmm. the reason that my parents left our native Haiti in the first place. And so, yes, Dartmouth, that was it. <laughs> That's where I was going. And coincidentally, I did land at Dartmouth. And I remember we traveled to Hanover in a caravan that was 10 cars deep, that included my mom, my dad, my younger sister, my grandmother, my younger cousins, my aunts, my uncles, family, friends. And so we traveled to Hanover in a caravan because we all wanted to be a part of the journey. I was the first in our family to attempt this big dream, to attempt to achieve this big goal. And so it wasn't an I journey. It was a we journey. Mm. We all wanted to be a part of it. And in some ways, we all needed to be a part of it. So as you can imagine, Hanover didn't know what hit it when the caravan (laughs) showed up. But here we were. We were here in Hanover. I just remember there was this big gulp in my throat. For 17 years, we had focused on getting in. No one had had a conversation with me about life after access. We now Mm -hmm. call it college access in our space, but we hadn't talked about it. We just thought that coming in and getting in was the dream. I had a very difficult transition from high school to college, like many first-generation college students. Mm -hmm. Even though on resume, I had the credentials to do well, I struggled with every aspect of college life when I first got here. I struggled academically, financially, personally, emotionally, and almost became a statistic. Mm. Almost dropped out. Were it not for the support of this incredible caravan and village, the support of mentors on this campus. And I want to call out a few of them now because I do remember their names. (laughs) Um, Professor Deborah King, who was my sociology professor and my major advisor, Dean Sylvia Langford. I know Dean Langford is not here anymore, Mm -hmm. but she was our academic dean. I remember Professor Hafiz Shabazz, who was my world's music professor. And by the way, I got a chance to hang out with him a couple of days ago, which was totally awesome. And a group of peers, we affectionately called ourselves the posse, you know, the Dartmouth posse. But were it not for that web of support, I wouldn't have been able to make it. Luckily, my story has a happy ending. I was able to turn things around. I did graduate from Dartmouth and I landed at Stanford for graduate school. Mm -hmm. But while my story has a happy ending, each year, hundreds of thousands of students with backgrounds and stories similar to mine embark on their college journeys armed with their big envelopes (laughs) and their acceptance letters or their emails, the way that it comes these days, believing like I did that they're prepared for the road ahead. But as I just shared, the statistics tell us otherwise. And so my why is to ensure that other students with backgrounds and stories similar to mine don't struggle as I did and that they have the web of support that they need to be able to overcome some of those obstacles, to be able to earn degrees, and to be able to eventually lead choice-filled lives.
0: You know, we're using this term first-generation college student. I don't think that term existed back in in the ninety, you know, early '90s, um, right? And and now, um, you know, Dartmouth has a has a first generation office, and you know, it's it's the responsibility of folks beyond, you know, not not random, but you know, certain professors or advisors um, to to support students like you know, first generation students, low income students, and so I'm I'm feeling like you know we've made a lot of progress, um, but it's still shocking to me that you know an institution like Dartmouth, even back then you know, didn't really think about supporting students like yourself. And I feel like it's taken people like you to go through the experience and maybe, you know, unfortunately, it wasn't a totally positive experience in, in some regards, and then figure out how to tackle the issue. Um, but, but on the note of, you know, sort of op- optimism, do you feel like there's progress being made in terms of this issue. Are you seeing, in terms of data or, or whatever else, um, some kind of good news story around the experience of first generation students in, in the US right now?
1: Yeah, thank you so much for that question. And, you know, Dartmouth wasn't unlike lots of institutions. The term didn't exist back then. I mean, we knew that there were students who didn't have college in their family history or in their backgrounds, but there wasn't necessarily a term. And quite frankly, I think we use deficit based language in education Mm. all the time to describe students like me. Mm -hmm. We describe students as low income, we describe students themselves, you know, not their circumstances. Um, as underperforming, Um, and those labels come with a stigma. Mm -hmm. And so back in the day, I don't think that there was a lot of pride around being the first or a lot of pride about the way that we were describing struggling students because we put the onus on them. Mm -hmm. Rather than describing a system that is failing them, Mm -hmm. we were describing students as failures. And so because of that, it was really hard for students to take advantage of support systems because they were stigmatized. Mm -hmm. And so I love the movement to describe students as first generation because it is an asset-based movement and it is based on student assets. Like, you're a pioneer. Mm -hmm. Being the first, right, is something to be proud of. Being the first means that you're doing something that your family has not done, and it carries the hopes and dreams of not just your family but your community. And what I love about what Dartmouth is doing now and what other institutions are doing now is about empowering students to accept the label and to accept it as something that is, I think, worthy of the big movement and Mm -hmm. the big um, undertaking. And so are we starting to see progress? We absolutely are starting to see progress. Um, Again, I think lots of institutions are creating first-generation centers creating first-generation first-year courses, providing first-generation students with extra support. And so those are all of the positive things. Back when I started Beyond 12, we thought that college access was the only thing. And so we were doing um, lots of work on getting students into college, and nobody was really looking at the data mm-hmm. once students got there. And I feel like in the um, almost decade um, since I've started Beyond 12, the field has shifted We are now looking at college success, and we're now looking at the transition to strong first jobs, right? And so Mm. those were all conversations that weren't happening, certainly when I was at Dartmouth or 12 years ago when I started Beyond 12. There is movement. There is movement. But I would say that it is not enough. Mm. It is not enough. And so there's still a lot of work for us to do. I am inspired by the movement, but also uh, undaunted by the work ahead (laughs) because there's still a lot of
0: work for us to do. Well, society appreciates that. Um, so yeah, d- digging a bit into your approach to tackling this issue, Alex, you know I, you graduated Dartmouth, you went to Stanford for graduate school. Um, I feel like there are uh, different angles through which you could have tackled this issue. You could have maybe gone into policy education policy or, or something like that. Um, why did you decide to found an organization yourself to create this organization to tackle the issue in the specific way that it ended up tackling it?
1: Yeah. So to answer that question, I'm going to take you back to 2006, 2007. Um, This is where I was. Um, Right after Stanford, I started working for an organization called New Schools Venture Fund. Mm -hmm. New Schools is a venture philanthropy firm, and New Schools invests in education entrepreneurs, so folks who are interested in starting organizations to address some of the challenges that we're talking about inequitable education outcomes for students um, from different backgrounds. And so I was a funder and we were funding, you know, a lot of education entrepreneurs. And so I saw how entrepreneurs were tackling social challenges and social problems. And as a funder at the time, we were funding a lot of the charter management organizations um, and they were doing amazing work in terms of getting students into college. And so we started asking the question, and because of my personal experience, what's happening to students once they get into college? Mm -hmm. Um, Are they persisting? Are they earning degrees that allow them to break the cycles of generational poverty? And at the time, all of the institutions were saying, I don't know. I can't answer that Mm -hmm. question. And so that sparked something for me. Like, we should be able to answer this question. Why can we not get post-secondary data back to high schools? Why can't we get information back to the institutions that are preparing students to help them not only provide better support to students as they are transitioning, but also to help them change their practices Mm -hmm. so that future generations of students are better prepared for college success? And so I was set on doing this. I, I looked at the landscape. And there were no organizations that were doing that data challenge piece. And there were very few organizations that were focusing on student success, college success, mm-hmm. lots of organizations focusing on getting students into college. And so I said, huh, I think I can do this. New School said, let's do it together. So I became an entrepreneur in residence at New Schools. And for a year or so, I did the research or what eventually became Beyond 12. We asked students, tell us about your challenges, tell us about what's happening to you when you're in college and help us design a solution that would be helpful to you. They talked about their challenges, they talked about their hopes, they talked about their dreams, they talked about what they wished they would have seen Mm -hmm. um, at their institutions and that became Beyond 12. And for us, what we heard loudly and clearly is that students deserve and need support. And so that's why we founded Beyond 12 on the principle of providing students with support in the form of coaching, but also being very data-driven, collecting data that we can then feed to both institutions of higher education and K-12 organizations so that they would understand the efficacy of their college readiness models and their college support programs. And so in addition to coaching students, we're collecting lots of key insights um, so that we can share those insights with our institutional partners. And when we look at post-secondary outcomes, we hold ourselves accountable to that. 66% of the students that we coach for two years and eighty-five percent of the students that we coach for four years have either graduated or remained enrolled by their sixth year of college.
0: Amazing. And this
1: is almost double the national average mm-hmm. for similar students, which is about forty to forty-four percent.
0: That's incredible. And I, I mean, in many ways, Alex, this is what I feel like is a is a classic, you know, entrepreneurship founder story, right? You identified this gap in the in the quote unquote market in this case, you know, it, a gap in filling this this social service or addressing this social issue, um, and you had a personal connection to it, and you went after it. Um, so this is, you know, as you mentioned, beyond twelve. It's ten plus years now that, that since the organization was was founded what's that journey been like, you know, the the personal founder journey? Can you you speak to that? Because I feel like a lot of students think about starting something um, and maybe don't know what they're getting into. Um, And I I think from what I gather, there is a lot, you know, a lot of hardship, a lot of overcoming barriers, um, many layers to that. So could you speak to that?
1: Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. So I often think about my entrepreneurial journey. It feels like it is an honor Mm. to do the work that I do every day and to call what I do work, right? To have conceived of something and then executed it and to see the impact is remarkable and I wish that for everybody. For me, one of the most important lessons that I've learned is how can you not be a solution in search of a problem? Mm. Right, I think a lot of folks are like, okay, here's the solution that I have, let me now go look for a place for this solution to be. And so my advice is always, what's the problem? What is the social problem? Exactly how we started this interview. Mm -hmm. What is the problem that you're trying to solve? How could you potentially solve it? And how do you solve it with and not for communities? Mm -hmm. And so for us, we have been working with students from the very beginning. So it's baked into our DNA. The importance of, um, of including your constituents, not just as survey respondents, but as co-creators and co-designers of your solution. It's so key. Um, And there have been challenges, quite frankly. And I wouldn't be myself if I didn't talk to you today about the special challenges of being a black female founder. Mm -hmm. That has come with its own challenges as well, both in terms of securing capital Mm. um, and being able to, again, have the resources to do the work. Um, and to create an organization that matches, right, the size of of the challenge. And so it's been a difficult journey. Um, there are lots of things that I would do differently. We were joking about this earlier that I founded Beyond 12 or officially launched Beyond 12 in 2010 and that I had my son in 2011. Great timing, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend that timing. <laughs>
0: specific, yeah. <laughs> specific timing
1: to anyone, but it's been a magical journey. So yeah. the entrepreneurial journey is, is, is Difficult, absolutely, and there were lots of times that I woke up and said, "Should I continue to do this? Can I do this?" There were lots of times when I would look at our bank account and say, mm-hmm. "Ugh." Um, but it's also been a beautiful, joy filled journey, and so it comes with its ups and downs for sure.
0: At the Center for Social Impact at Dartmouth, broadly speaking, I think we're we're hoping that we're preparing students to be to become change makers to address these issues in society, it feels like never-ending and increasingly um, daunting issues that that our society is facing right now. And I'm wondering if you have any advice for students right now that are, are thinking about addressing a social issue in some way through their careers. Can you speak to that?
1: Absolutely. Lots of advice. One piece that I would offer is connected to what I was saying before, do the research. And so get to understand if there is something that you're interested in, understand the organizations that are tackling it, get to the bottom of the issue, speak to constituents. And so immerse yourself in whatever that issue is. And I know that the center provides lots of opportunities for students to do that. Mm -hmm. So get the practical experience, work Mm -hmm. with a nonprofit organization or a social impact organization to understand exactly how folks are tackling the issue. So that's my first advice. Get involved. The second one is just take the leap, right? Oftentimes, and this is something that I would have told my younger self, just do it, just do it. Um, Your foray now as a student doesn't necessarily have to be where you land in your career. Mm -hmm. So I think the importance of just moving, taking the step, The third is what I would have told my younger self as well, is chill out. It's going to work out.
0: (laughs) I love that one. Yes. Yeah. yeah.
1: It's going to work out. It's absolutely going to work out. You have been prepared at Dartmouth. Yeah. You know, you have the foundation, the skills, the knowledge, the community to be able to succeed in a social impact role and so don't spend so much time fretting about it and worrying about it because you will be able to do it Um, and the last one is joy for me um, we talk at beyond 12 about joy being a revolutionary act and there's so much joy that we take in doing the work we take our work seriously and never ourselves that's another phrase (laughs) that we're very fond of saying at beyond 12 but This should be
0: a joyful pursuit for you. Well, this was certainly a joyful conversation with you, Alex. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for all the great work that you and Beyond 12 are doing.
1: Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to be back here. I'm looking forward to being back again sometime (laughs) soon.
0: Thanks, Alex. Take care.
1: Take care.